Gregor, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Greg, you are a, a poet, and we might even say a, a poet of, um, in the title of one of your uh, books, of Poetry as Survival. Um, and uh, we'll talk more about some of the uh, places that has taken you as a poet. But I'd like to uh, ask if you could begin by reading a, a prose poem of yours called A Litany. Absolutely. A litany. I remember him falling beside me, the dark stain already seeping across his parka hood. I remember screaming and running the half mile to our house. I remember hiding in my room I remember that it was hard to breathe and that I kept the door shut in terror that someone would enter. I remember pressing my knuckles into my eyes. I remember looking out the window once at where an ambulance had backed up over the lawn to the front door. I remember someone hung from a tree near the barn, the deer we'd killed just before I shot my brother. I remember toward evening, someone came with soup. I slurped it down, unable to look up. In the bowl, among the vegetable chunks, pale shapes of the alphabet bobbed at random or lay in the shallow spoon. So this event, uh, the shooting and death of your brother, was really the formative source of your work as a poet. I think that's true. I think, I think the disturbing thing is that it's a formative source as a negation, and um, and that is a good part of the story. That uh, that 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 meaning appears as a possibility in my life first, as a kind of complete, absolute challenge to meaning. The fact that my brother died, the fact that I was responsible for it. Now, this negation, as you describe it. That's the source. But in your work, what becomes clear, and I, I found your work profoundly useful to me personally and the work both that I do with myself and the work that we've done for over 25 years with cancer patients, there is the trauma which leaves us, as you say, in that space of negation. And then there is the, the recovery which is the active reshaping of that negation uh, into, in your case, lyric poetry. Absolutely. Uh, the amazing thing is that challenges to meaning uncover 
uh, I think, what are the deepest resources of the human spirit uh, to affirm, to reshape, to um, um, reaccept the world, to reimagine it, to affirm being. Those are pretty amazing uh, resources, and often it's it's trauma, which is which is the most uh, destructive thing that can happen to a self. I think uh, it's it's often well, it's, it's sometimes trauma that allows that affirmation to come into being. I want to ask you. I think I have this right, but I'm not sure. In reading your your beautiful book, Poetry as Survival. It seems to me, if I have it right, that you associate the negation of trauma when it makes the turn toward creative potential to imagine something different from the self that was erased by the trauma. You associate that with Keats's concept of, of negative, is it negative capacity or negative capability? Negative capability. Of negative capability, mm-hmm. which Keats saw above all in Shakespeare's capacity to leave himself and to place himself imaginatively in all the characters that Shakespeare created. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's true. That's one of the great um, imaginings that Keats had about, about what was possible with uh, the human imagination and the human affirmative spirit. Uh, he was, uh, he was, in, and, and it did. It involved a, a loss of self. Uh, that was uh, um, uh, this giving up of self in order to assume other selves uh, or to to reshape the self. And you talk about how every culture has different ways of dealing with. Uh, great loss and trauma, either individual loss or trauma or societal loss that really represents millions of individual losses. Uh, and one of those approaches is, is, uh, is lyric poetry. Uh, but you mean lyric poetry in an expansive sense because you include in lyric poetry, for example, popular music. Yeah, I think the first thing that I want to do, especially as a poet, as a teacher, is to abolish the notion of poetry as an elite art, uh, or that there's a kind of hierarchy of poetry that you go from, you know, popular song and so on and so forth up towards um, uh, some some uh, high art, some perfected um, elite cultural event called the great poem. I think that's all nonsense. I think, in fact, it's it's a kind of dangerous nonsense to me with my perspective on poetry because I think that, that poetry and song, the listening to it in order to be sustained, the making up of songs and poems, it's a human birthright. It's, it's given to every human being in the world. And the idea that poetry is a uh, an elite art form only for educated or sensitive people is, I think, a, a, a tragic uh, misunderstanding of its deepest purpose, um, if that makes any sense. And yet you are a practitioner of the elite art form. I am a practitioner of the art form. Uh-huh. <laughs> but my goal is, is uh, uh, every time the art form or the poem succeeds, it's because it reaches out to, to mm-hmm. people, and people respond to it. 
because of the connection, not because of the uh, the um, not because of the elite n- nature of it. What is what's confusing is this. Um, Poetry, by definition, and the, the definition varies from culture to culture, poetry is always, in that given culture, the most organized, patterned uh, form of language that that culture can conceptualize. Now, the reason that it is so ordered and uh, patterned isn't to keep people out. It's because that order and patterning has to be strong so that it can handle all the inner chaos and suffering and trauma and sorrow and passion or experience of war or something that the individual brings to the poem. The stronger the structure, the more disorder it can hold in a kind of dynamic tension. So it's not patterned in order to leave people out. It's patterned in order to make them feel safe. Uh, and it's, it's patterned in order to reassure them. Let's return to another poem about your brother called Gathering the Bones Together. Would you hmm. read that for us? It begins with a dedication and an epigraph. Uh, it's a it's a poem in, in seven parts, and uh, some of them have titles. The epigraph is for Peter Orr. When all the rooms of the house fill with smoke, it's not enough to say an angel is sleeping on the chimney. One, a night in the barn. The deer carcass hangs from a rafter wrapped in blankets a boy keeps watch from a pile of loose hay then he sleeps and dreams about a death that is coming inside him there are small bones scattered in a field among burdocks and dead grass he will spend his life walking there gathering the bones together. Pigeons rustle in the eaves. At his feet, the German shepherd snaps its jaws in its sleep. Two. A father and his four sons run down a slope toward a deer they just killed. The father and two sons carry rifles. They laugh, jostle, and chatter together. A gun goes off, and the youngest brother falls to the ground. A boy with a rifle stands beside him, screaming. I crouch in the corner of my room, staring into the glass well of my hands. Far down, I see him drowning in air. Outside, leaves shaped like mouths make a black pool under a tree. Snails glide there 
little deaf swans. Four, smoke. Something has covered the chimney and the whole house fills with smoke. I go outside and look up at the roof, but I can't see anything. I go back inside. Everyone weeps, walking from room to room. Their eyes ache. This smoke turns people into shadows. Even after it is gone, and the tears are gone, we will smell it in pillows when we lie down to sleep. Five. He lives in a house of black glass. Sometimes I visit him and we talk. My father says he is dead. But what does that mean? Last night, I found a child sleeping on a nest of bones. He had a red, leaf-shaped scar on his cheek. I lifted him up and carried him with me, even though I didn't know where I was going. Six, the journey. Each night I knelt on a marble slab and scrubbed at the blood. I scrubbed for years and still it was there. But tonight the bones in my feet begin to burn. I stand up and start walking and the slab appears under my feet with each step. A white road only as long as your body. Seven, the distance. The winter I was eight, a horse slipped on the ice, breaking its leg. Father took a rifle, a can of gasoline. I stood by the road at dusk and watched the carcass burning in the far pasture. I was 12 when I killed him. I felt my own bones wrench from my body. Now I am 27 and walk beside this river looking for them. They have become a bridge that arches toward the other shore. Gregor, you were born in Albany, New York, uh, in 1947, and um, you've written an extraordinary memoir called The Blessing. Um, and uh, The Blessing is about, uh, starts with, or begins with, uh, your brother's death. Um, and it goes on through a, one can only say a, a chaotic and traumatic childhood. Uh, uh, your father was a physician uh, addicted to amphetamines. Uh, your 
you also had another brother die from uh, eating some of your mother's sleeping pills. Uh, your mother died when you were young uh, in Haiti. I'm sorry, in where was it? Was it in, yeah, Haiti? in Haiti? Right, in yeah. Haiti. Overnight. Uh, overnight, uh, just going in for a routine operation, uh, theoretically routine operation, and, and she died uh, shortly afterward. Uh, and then as a, a young man, and, and we share a lot of this history, actually, uh, because we're almost the mm-hmm. same age, um, you went down as a civil rights worker to uh, uh, Mississippi, where you were quite traumatically uh, beaten and, uh, and, uh, uh, and scared deeply. Yeah, kidnapped uh, at gunpoint right. and put right. in solitary confinement for a week in a, right. a very violent little town in Alabama. Right. Yeah. So there was a whole history of, of, of trauma and chaos building on that initial uh, uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had a a teacher, a librarian, um, who Bless showed her. you the way out. Bless her. Yes, I did. Tell I us did. about her. Well, um, you know, again, I, I was in a, grew up in an incredibly small town. I mean, we had 36 kids in my graduating class, and we were, we were pulling people in from, the, from 20 miles in all directions, and it was just, you know, just very rural. For some reason, the our high school librarian decided to run a kind of honors English class. I don't even I don't think we'd ever even heard the word before. Uh, but she took seven of us, and instead of going to the regular English class, we would go to this room by the library, and we would uh, we would read things, we would hear about things, we would listen to plays on a record player. And we would pretty much write and write and write different kinds of writing. She she seemed to think any kind of writing would be interesting and fun to do, and she was very encouraging. Somewhere in the course of that uh, time, that senior year, um, I I wrote a poem, and um, it there was something about it. Now it's it's a it's an easy poem to characterize in one way as a kind of a poem in which uh, there was um, an enormous desire to escape, to be somewhere else. And that, that longing was uh, channeled into this, this first poem. Uh, but what amazed me about the poem, about the experience of writing it, was that it felt as if the poem actually achieved... I really did feel transported to some other place. I felt I was—I had both created another world and been able to inhabit it. Now, uh, as you've pointed out, considering the world that I actually inhabited uh, in my sort of autobiographical life right there, uh, not only these traumas, but the extreme isolation of shame that, that accompanied them, uh, this this experience of release and escape through imagination was an extraordinary experience for me. And in addition to that, uh, the, the the experience itself was just this authentic release and, and uh, amazing amazing to me. Uh, but she also 
she also said, yes, this is good. Good for you. You astonished me. Uh, and that was a wonderful thing for me, too, uh, that, that uh, endorsement, that approval. Uh, and between the two of them, between the, uh, the discovery that language can uh, both express and create, uh, can express an inner reality, inner longing in this case, too, to be released, and also that it can um, it can it can uh, create that world and it can uh, channel a great deal of emotion. Uh, that was a, a discovery for me that I never went back from, couldn't, and I never felt that when I wrote prose. I used to um, I used to write short stories and and uh, things like that. I, I mean I, I was intrigued by the idea of being a writer, but. Whenever I wrote a short story, my uh, uh, by the end of the story, my characters would be so trapped by uh, the world or something that they would end up killing themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I mean, I can laugh at rather ironically, but um, I felt there was a connection between more life and vitality in poetry, and for me, in prose, there was a. There was not that experience when I wrote prose. I, I, I felt the selves to be too trapped by circumstance. When you speak of your characters killing themselves, you almost took your own life as a, a young man, um, uh, an event that you describe in, in The Blessing, where uh, I won't ask you to read it, but perhaps you can describe the circumstance where you found yourself standing on a ledge uh, uh, in Upper Manhattan. Yeah, well, I had, I had, it was this, the summer I was 18, I had pretty much come back, just come back from uh, experiences in Mississippi um, and Alabama. Um, People who had kidnapped me in Alabama had had murdered somebody, um, very much someone who was caught very much in the same circumstances that I had been caught in uh, about a month after I was there. And I had read that story in the Times and and was pretty shocked by that. Um, And I was living alone in New York City for the first time. Um, just, just seemed to hit, hit uh, the the end of the story. I wanted to be a poet, but I did not yet have the skill. I had this, I had the need to put words out on the page, but I did not have the skill to organize them into poems, into a kind of coherence. And um, that's a that's a painful time for poets, for young poets, when you have the need, the drive to write, the desire to turn the world into words, but you still lack the skill to make them come together into something meaningful or beautiful. So um, things were aligned against me at that point, and that was. And I just stood on the ledge for a while, and barely stoned, as I recall. Stoned too, yes, absolutely. Yeah. That was, uh, I think, was also just about the first or second time I'd ever 
uh, smoked marijuana, uh, and that is that was not that was not a good thing for me. Mm. That was not a good thing for me at all. So basically, it, uh, all the wrong stars had aligned at that moment, and yet and yet it did not happen. I mean, since what we're talking about is simply a Somebody standing on a ledge, you're talking about a single step. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not take that step. And uh, so in that sense, it's... it's um, and then there's all the life ahead mm-hmm. when you don't do that. Right. I'd like to ask you to read another poem, this one from the beginning of, a, of an extraordinary book of yours, uh, one of, I think, ten books. This one called Concerning the the book that is the body of the beloved, concerning the book that is the body of the beloved. And um, I'd like to ask you to read um, the the sort of preface poem, uh, Resurrection of the Body of the Beloved, and then go on to read uh, the first poem on page 9. Maybe I should preface it by saying that, um, well, I guess being a lyric poet, one one lives uh, somewhat in relation to a, a kind of uh, the ups and downs of the emotional, spiritual life. Um, these poems came to me um, in the winter of 2003. Um uh, as a kind of a changing of my life set of poems. In fact, these are an ongoing series of poems that I'm still writing. Um, they came to me by way of a voice saying to me this, this phrase, um, the book that is the resurrection of the body of the beloved, which is the world. And um, I heard that voice one morning when I woke from sleep and... Um, and then I heard a number of poems, and basically the, the book is in some sense um, recording those poems and working with those poems. And, and so, they, so they're kind of chronologically happening, and I'll, I'll explain one of the things that that means to me for a, in a second, but, but let's just start with it. This is the preface poem, in a sense, uh, and it begins a little bit with the story of Osiris and Isis, Osiris being uh, an Egyptian god who was... Uh, killed and dismembered by uh, by his evil brother, and then Isis, his wife goddess, who gathered all the parts of his body together and resurrected him. So here we go. Resurrection of the body of the beloved, which is the world, which is the poem of the world, the poem of the body. Mortal ourselves, and filled with awe, we gather the scattered limbs of Osiris, that he should live again, that death not be oblivion. And this is the first poem in that sequence. The beloved is dead, limbs and all the bodies miraculous parts scattered across Egypt, stained with dark mud. We must find them, 
gather them together, bring them into a single place as an anthologist might collect all the poems that matter into a single book, a book which is the body of the beloved, which is the world. Mm. Uh, when I heard that phrase, the book that is the resurrection of the body of the beloved, which is the world, when I heard that, that voice say that, I, I suddenly understood what this book was, that it was something that had been being gathered throughout the world since the dawn of time, all the poems and songs gathered together uh, so that uh, when we needed them, uh, we, could, we could draw from that book, we could draw the poems and songs that we individually need. So in a strange way, without my realizing it, um, uh, I, I only realized this maybe about, oh, three months ago or something, I had rewritten one of my darkest lines from Gathering the Bones Together. Well, that, that poem itself, Gathering the Bones Together. Uh, in this opening poem, it's been rewritten as, um, as gathering, you know, basically gathering the poems together. That's it. And you say you only realized that a few months ago? <laughs> Sorry, I'm slow, <laughs> Michael. No, but th what's interesting <laughs> to me is that the reason I asked you to read it uh -huh. is that it resonated so deeply with me from Gathering the Bones Together, the poem you read just before, and I thought, so this was a conscious process of, uh, of you know, yep. in other words, this is such a, a, a continuation. And yet a, the earlier poem was uh, so deeply grounded in the concrete experience of, of your brother's death. True. And this takes it to the mythic level, uh, yep. the mythopoetic level, in which uh, you're speaking of all the poems and all the... Uh, and all of us, yes, I hope. Yes, yeah. yeah, I mean, all of us have lost beloveds. Right. And all of us long for beloveds. Yeah, but you, you do need to know that this, that, that, uh, and this again would be, a, this would be a story about lyric poets. Uh, it was not conscious. In, in fact, uh, my joy and embarrassment about the last two books is that uh, they are um, they are not the product of my uh, um, crafting uh, imagination. They are in, in, in large part uh, gifts from some place. And the first the first form that that gift took is it said, look, you know, you got you got the spiritual quest of your life wrong when you heard it as gathering the bones together mm. and that was a um, uh, to use a term from Claude Levi-Strauss that was a monomyth that was uh, that was a story that closed you inside yourself in some ways mm. to gather the bones together that kind of penitential thing whereas for someone or for all of us to be gathering poems together is as you say the mythopoetic thing it's a social project. In fact, it's the largest human project that my imagination can conceive. Again, I can't take credit for conceiving it because it was uh, told to me by a voice. But, but I do understand what it means, and and uh, and I am uh, oh, 
I am dedicating my life to to advocating what the implications of this that this just this gigantic resource of affirmation about and testimony about life uh, in songs and poems and uh, it's just all there and of course it's all there but we have to go to that book and we have to pull out the poems and find the poems and songs that will sustain us personally you know so when emerson says emerson at a certain point he says make your own bibles and that's what i think the book is it's a it is a gigantic secular scripture uh, a human vast human undertaking that people have contributed to and it asks us as individuals to go to it and make our own Bibles from that, the one, the particular anthology or download that, that uh, playlist that will sustain us. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and speaking of, of Emerson's Make Your Own Bibles, uh, two of your poet heroes, um, uh, Whitman and Blake, both also spoke of, of uh, in their own work, of the sense that they were making their own Bibles. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I uh, and I and I love that. Uh, I don't have the uh, 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 ego power to say I'm making a Bible. What I'm doing is pointing at the project of uh, uh, both Blake and Whitman had these grand visions and said, you know. This is a new Bible. This is really going to come in handy if you read it. Whitman, read this, read this book every, every year in the open air. It's going to help you a lot. Mm-hmm. I love that, and I, and I take him at his word, and I do it. Uh, but what I'm doing is, is somewhat different in the sense that, that I'm just, uh, the, the title of that first collection about this is called Concerning the Book That's the Body of the Beloved. Beloved. Uh, I mean, I just can talk about the book. I don't. I, I, I'm. Uh, I want everybody to make their own Bibles. In fact, I'm. I'm teaching a class now called uh, "How Poetry Can Save Your Life," and uh, the first thing I tell my students is, uh, "Poetry can't save your life. You can save your life by uh, by choosing the poems and songs that um, that both describe you, that express what you feel." And that sustain you, that offer you hope and courage. So, so when I write the poems of the beloved, I'm I'm, I'm just, uh, I, and when I write about the book, I, I'm I'm just trying to sort of be a publicist for this phenomena. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, you're being modest. Uh, one of your many admirers among your peers is the truly iconic American poet Mary Oliver, and in her uh, cover quote for your book concerning the book that is the body of the beloved, uh, she compares you to Whitman. She says, Gregor is here, Walt Whitman, without an inch of Whitman's bunting or oratory. Gregor is a gorgeous poet, and this is a gorgeous book. And also, uh, uh, in her quote uh, about uh, Poetry as Survival, which I find a truly extraordinary book that we'll return to, um, she says... uh, Gregory Orr's thesis is the transcendent power of personal lyric poetry, its bomb, and far more than that, its ability to enable persons 
who have undergone trauma to fortify and recreate themselves by speaking out through the exactitude and dignity of poetry. Poetry as Survival is a thoughtful, elegant, and important book. So you may describe yourself modestly as a publicist, but there are others who um, uh, feel uh, uh, echoes of, um, of great depth, uh, and we should at least note that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, there we go. I'm, you know... Uh, let let me go to the point you just made. Uh, you uh, you teach at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, where you founded the uh, Masters in Fine Arts program in writing in 1975, and um, you also have served as poetry editor for Virginia Quarterly Review uh, from 1978 to 2003. Uh, your wife is the painter uh, Tricia Orr, and you have two daughters. Um, uh, but coming to, it, it struck me uh, when I read the story of the librarian who, who really saved your life with that, um, with that uh, honors English class. And, Absolutely. Um, it seems to me that you have, have chosen to do the same thing, in a sense. And teaching a course uh, in poetry uh, can save your life. Uh, really is an homage to what she did for you. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it would be... I, I deeply believe this. Uh, and uh, I, I deeply believe that, uh, again, what, you know, in, in a sense, we started by uh, the, the question of whether poetry is an elite art form. And, uh, and, and I, I think that's a terrible thing. I think it's... it's I, what I want to say is, I mean... It's for all of us, and, and, and there's no better way to have a chance to say that than, than teaching. I mean, it's a structured um, social circumstance where the teacher's allowed to say certain things and try to persuade certain things uh, to, to people to open them up. And, you know, again, the, the, the great... Uh, I think high school is, is, is an incredibly pivotal moment in the formation of a self. Um, college also, again, there's a, there's a sense in which we come to college. Um, there is, because of the way it, it disrupts the patterns of our lives, it makes it possible for us to change our lives and to, uh, to be, um, uh, if not reborn, at least uh, reoriented. So I, I do love to say well, if you're involved in a project of uh, examining uh, your life and, uh, um, you know, it, it, this, nothing is more suitable to help you do that than, uh, than the reading and writing of uh, lyric poetry. Can you tell us, I'm not sure you can, but can you tell us the, the story of, of a student of yours uh, who has come through your program uh, at the University of Virginia uh, that exemplifies um, another person's uh, use of poetry to survive trauma? Oh, there are, there are more than a few. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, again, I can't... I can't specify without seeming 
feeling even even just in the telling as if I were sort of violating a privacy. Yes, that's that was my but, concern. Sure, yeah. but I, I it, it's funny. I just uh, I just came back from a, a large, uh, <laughs> gigantic convention of of teaching writers up in Washington, and um, part of that phenomena for me is 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 meeting um, so so many students that I, I mean I have taught for I've been te- teaching for 40 years and I just meet generations of young writers and these are, are the ones who themselves are teaching so that the, the phenomena is, is being passed along and um, I don't think there's any of them that, that didn't didn't feel uh, freed uh, and um, um, deepened by the encounter with with writing and reading, uh, if I was the one that brought that to them, then then that's wonderful. But I know they're also passing it along. I just I just see their faces and I, and, and you know and what they say to me, and and I know it's you know it's an ongoing project, and that's that really makes me very happy. Let's go more deeply into the the argument of poetry as survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's start on, on page 87 with uh, uh, a segment called Silence and Suffering with a quote from Sylvia Plath. Uh, could you read that quote? This is a quote from Plath. My sickness is when words draw in their horns and the physical world refuses to be ordered, recreated, arranged, and selected. I'm a victim of it then, not a master. And then on the next page... Uh, and b- by the way, uh, being a poet, I have to point yeah. out that when she says, when words draw in their horns, um, the image she's probably working with mm-hmm. there is of a snail. Yes. The first thing it would do is draw in its horns, and the second thing mm-hmm. it would do is just, just curl up inside that protective shell. <laughs> right. Sorry about that. And you say later on the page, uh, this... Uh, um, uh, we think that in order to successfully endure our suffering, we must not speak even to ourselves. And yet the silence makes us the victim of our experience, not the master. We cannot master experience until we acknowledge its true natures and dimensions, both the facts of what happened and the emotions associated with those facts. And then you go on in the next uh, page uh, to talk about secrets and poetry. Um, tell us a little about that. Well, uh, again, um, I think the thing that, you know, that, that Nietzsche said at one point, he said, all philosophy is actually unconscious autobiography. Um, and all my feelings, of course, uh, that, and ideas uh, kind of emerge from personal experience. Uh, for me, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to imagine my, my brother's death, my mother's death, uh, the feelings about these things uh, that, that led me deep into shame and silence. Um, I also had a kind of Protestant uh, background, which uh, elevates um, silent suffering into a, a virtue, um, inexplicably. Um, and what concerns me is that that language is is um, is what 
can take us outside ourselves. Now, the, the, one of the beautiful things about poetry is that um, it's possible to um, to communicate, to 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 express um, in a safe way by turning language, by turning secrets into um, um, something that's between between the individual self and the page. Um, they may never go beyond that page, but merely the unburdening, the releasing. I mean, for, for uh, many, many of us um, who teach poetry, many of us who write poetry, we hear, we hear um, even my students turn against themselves and they say, well, oh, you know, you don't want to hear that, all that expressive stuff. You don't want to hear me uh, spilling my guts. Um, this is a terrible misunderstanding about the about the uh, about the the burden of being an isolated human being, and the power that that poetry has to to release us from that. Um, uh, again, it's it's it takes a certain amount of courage to go from um, speaking the secret uh, uh, to the page and sharing the secret with the world. Um, in in the sense of publishing a poem or a piece of writing, um, I I'm, have to say I believe in both of those, um, but I don't want to say one is more important than the other. I think I think that merely one of the things I love to do is give people permission to to write, to put their secrets out on the page without shame or uh, um, inhibition. On on these two pages, 88 and 89, you have two quotes that are, face each other. One is from Stanley Kunitz, and the other is the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Could you read them both? <laughs> sure, yes. Well, uh, Stanley, who was, who was a, a teacher of mine, by the way, Stanley Kunitz, and he was, he was, a, he was my teacher and a, and a dear friend for, for years and years and years. Um, Stanley Kunitz. Poetry is where we meet to share our secrets. Mm-hmm. He has another quote, um, uh, which I also love. He has a, uh, uh, um, poetry is the voice of the solitary that makes others less alone. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. it's wonderful. Again, that's a, I, I think it, it, it speaks for the, uh, the, the, the courage position of the poet mm-hmm. that he or she will will say what others have felt but fear to say. Not just on our, our unable to say, but, but fear to say. Uh, let's see, so here's the, here's the disclosure and healing the gospel of, not the gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, quote, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. So it's, beautiful. I love that quote. It it's always stayed with me. Um, yeah. And you go on dark, from, but yes. I think, it, I think it, it, it's exactly right. Yeah. You go on from there to cite the, the extraordinary work James Pennybaker has done on, on, uh, uh, on journaling and yeah. its impact on chronic illness and uh, yeah. a study that shows that, that people with chronic illness who uh, wrote uh, for 20 minutes on uh, three consecutive days uh, the most painful incident in their lives 
did much better than people who wrote on what I plan to do today. So that sort of, you know, uh, uh, evidence really of the power of, um, of, of disclosure on uh, recovery from trauma. But what really interested me after that um, is something quite commonsensical at some level that you did, but I've never seen it done quite so clearly before. Uh, you talked about the spectrum of disclosure. And um, could you describe that spectrum? Well, let's see. It's on page 91. Yeah. I guess I kind of invented it. Let's see what it is. Right. Um, uh, it seems to be a spectrum, uh, and the the uh, um, the uh, at the extreme left we have uh, we have silence, and this is a silence that can have to do with shame, fear, or guilt. And then we're moving toward uh, speech, but this speech is um, could be a kind of blurted disclosure. It could be something. It could be a um, impulsive confession or something like that. Uh, classic um, person getting drunk in a bar and saying something they'd never had said before or something like that. I don't really know. Then we go a little further toward writing, and we enter the world of, of both diary and journal. And as you say, uh, one of the things that Benabacker's study showed was that uh, and this, this is not psychological. He was measuring the uh, immune system, the T cells, and I mean we're 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 in the world where somehow turning the world into words is uh, literally physiologically uh, healing, uh, and and it stimulates the immune system. We can go from that uh, in many directions, but there we are. So we've gone from silence to speech to writing. And writing continues on a, a kind of continuum of um, from the, the just the, the un, you know just the writing out of diary and journal to to the shaped narrative or memoir, um, which is uh, which calls for um, I think a more more complicated uh, um, introspective thinking about. Uh, events in one's own life and, 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 and patterns in it, patterns in the life and, uh, um, and in the emotional life. And then at the far, the far end, the most extremely ordered version of writing that we have is, is poetry. And, uh, and as I say, to me, the, the reason that poetry is so ordered, uh, is, is so highly structured, is so that it can carry the heaviest burden of our of our disorder, whether that disorder be something as completely joyous as uh, uh, as falling passionately in love, or whether it, it that disorder is a um, uh, is a deep grief or loss or or even uh, you know um, madness, mental disturbance. Uh, the the reason that poetry is so ordered is so that it can handle disorder. A disorder is not a moral category; it's an experiential category. Uh, it goes from uh, the disorder of adventure and joy uh, to to uh, the to disorders of violence and suffering and pain. But they are experiential; they're not moral. What's achieved the poem 
is, I think, both a moral and spiritual victory for the individual uh, and for anybody who reads it and, and feels it. But, uh, and but, in, uh, this, in this deeply ordered uh, uh, nature of poetry, which gives it the power, uh, a transcendent power to, to order what has been chaotically disrupted within us, um, you, you note um, that across all cultural differences, there are, to quote you, three abiding and primordial powers that shape language into poems, regardless of the culture, story, symbol, and incantation. And I wondered if you'd walk us through uh, those three key elements for you uh, that transcend culture of the nature of the poem. Well, I'll give it a try. <laughs> um, what I, in thinking about poetry, one of the one of the things that that I was thinking was, you know, you're just not going to get anywhere thinking about oh, poetry is poetry is what rhymes, poetry is this and that and the other thing. All different cultures define poetry differently. They're looking for different kinds of patternings that they can do. But it seemed to me, among all these, this kind of welter of possibilities. Certain things um, recurred again and again as kind of ordering principles, and one of them seemed to me uh, some some of them seemed to me to be quite possibly or probably uh, hardwired into the human brain. Um, if I said that, I wouldn't be the first person to say that, uh, and and people have done enough work on that notion of the hardwiring of of story as a form of meaning making. Uh, to to say it better than I would, but but when we try to make sense out of our experience, we're very often inclined to turn it into a story. We're inclined to begin at some place, to see a kind of a, a beginning place, and then to move into some kind of development out of that, and to see it achieve a kind of resolution. We also often see uh, experience as a kind of a tension between self and other or or between self and world, a, a kind of tension that story resolves that we, or that we resolve by turning it into a story. Um, again, I wish I, wish I was a genius and could talk more about that and stuff, but I, I, my, my, my gift is to be commonsensical. Well, one thing you say about story, which I found very useful, is that um, in terms of the other human consolations for disorder, uh, you note that two of them are, are religion and philosophy. Yeah. And in one way or another, they take us toward abstractions or generalized uh, solutions. But you you write story on the other hand goes in the opposite direction in its sense in its search for meanings. Beauty in story is always a matter of embodiment and sensuous incarnation in details and specifics. Uh, and uh, you quote Ezra Pound urging poets to seek the luminous detail, and again William Blake to labor well in the minute, in the minute particulars. So. 
the thing about story that you find so powerful and that I find so powerful is that it proceeds from our embodied experience, not from the urgings toward social constructions, either philosophical or religious. Absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I like that. But, but you then go on uh, to talk about symbol mm-hmm. in a very lovely way. Uh, and, uh, and so the symbol, as I understand it, is, is uh, the story aspires to resolution, but the resolution in a poem in some sense, must engage the symbolic, if I understand you correctly. Sounds good. Yes, I like that. Michael, you're, you're better at, at expounding me than I am. Please go on. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it sounds good, I'll say yes. That's what I mean. Well, no? uh, well I, I think I, th- I won't do this for very long. No, no, but, I'm, but, I'm serious. But uh, what? That you're, that well, you're, I'm I'm working with your words. So yeah, uh, and and your and and the words for you are vivid. Right. I wrote the book seven years ago, right. and I. But you you quote uh, William Butler Yeats, who was uh, speaking yeah. in your voice, who Absolutely. was a master of symbols, spoke about the multiplicity within unity when he praised, praised ancient symbols. Um, it is only by ancient symbols, by symbols that have numberless meanings besides the one or two the writer lays emphasis upon or the half score he knows of, that any highly subjective art can escape from the barrenness and shallowness of too conscious an arrangement into the abundance and depth of nature. So that sense that the poem, that the poet unconsciously almost, or perhaps consciously sometimes, but certainly unconsciously at some level, as we saw when, when, when your transition from the Gathering the Bones poem to the opening poem and concerning the book that is the body of the beloved, that you didn't become aware of Where it of becomes that. Gathering the Poems together, exactly. exactly. And I was not even aware and, of it. Yes, and yet to the reader, it was immediately apparent. Yep. So yep. that... that uh, so that sense of the, the power of symbol, but symbol in this incarnated uh, use of, of the poem as an order, ordering power. Well, this is what we find again and again about lyric poetry, that what it has to offer that's, that distinguishes it, um, you know, there are several things, but one of the major things that distinguishes it from the consolations of philosophy and religion is that it... it it wishes to particularize and incarnate. It wishes to, to honor and acknowledge that we are embodied beings and that we, um, we enact our meanings and uh, we, we struggle to, to understand our meanings in terms of, of this world. And as you say, that's both story and it's symbol. Uh, we, we, we sense that symbol is, is something which is, which is significant and yet, it, and yet the, the richness and depth of being are revealed by our sense that we can never exhaust. Uh, uh, one of, when, when we love symbols, and I think both you and I do, it's because we know that, that they're always saying more, more than we'll ever quite get. And that, that's a glimpse into, uh, into the depth of, of being, the depth of uh, significance. And then the third element that you believe transcends cultural dimensions of poetry 
along with story and symbol, is the power of incantation. Absolutely. Uh, please uh, give me a sense of what you mean by that. Well, the first thing, the first thing I'd want to say is that um, I, had, I had been... I had been writing poems for 20, 30 years and listening to people write about poetry, talk about poetry, uh, reading about poetry, and I almost never heard the word incantation. I think, uh, I think certainly if I was reading uh, um, in religion or sociology of religion and so forth, the word would have come up probably, theology. But in poetry, for some reason, it didn't. We have a very... Uh, lame and tame word called repetition, mm. and I find that just doesn't speak to the phenomena, because it, it just, it, because incantation really, and here it's where, uh, where it's, it's mingling with the, the, the power uh, that religious language constantly makes use of, uh, the power that by repeating a phrase or a word to intensify significance. Uh, to to mysteriously uh, give us access to uh, depths of emotion, and, and it's hard, it's 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 easy to point to these things. It's harder to say exactly how they happen. Another thing I would say is that again, incantation takes us toward toward magic, toward the abracadabra, or toward uh, uh, that 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 sense that of uh, the repeating of of uh, syllables of sounds is deeply gratifying. So that something like rhyme becomes a, a very small subcategory of incantation. And, I, and that's the way I would like to think about rhyme, not as a significant thing, except if it points toward incantation, which is itself significant. But then the other thing is lullabies, or, or just the, 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 the repetition of rhythm is, it, is both soothing to us, and, and, and paradoxically it can also be stimulating. Uh, it can intensify or it can calm. But both those things are, are, are deep phenomena for human beings. Uh, you, you cite as examples uh, Molly Bloom's repeated yes of sexual surrender uh, at the end of Joyce's Ulysses and also King Lear's agonized groans over his dead daughter, never, 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 never. Uh, never, so, never. He says it, I think, seven times. It's Right. I tried that out loud the other day with my students, yeah. and it really, you cannot say it without being changed. Right. You can't, you know, it's, uh, it's strange. And it, the same for yes. yes. The same for yes. Or, uh, you know, the, the, the soothing that, a, that a, a mother might do of a child in which they just repeat the child's name. Or says, there, there, there. Mm. You know? Yes. Yeah. It's very mysterious, whether it's whether it's hardwired or whether it's primordial in our experience from childhood. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter to me. I know that it's it's deeper than words can go. I mean, than articulation could get. The last thing I'd like to explore with you, and I, I could really go on for a long time, but but uh, the last segment I'd like to have in this conversation mm -hmm. today is. Um, a chapter again in, in the book Poetry as Survival, which we've been exploring for the last uh, few minutes, yeah. called The Dangerous Angel. And um, what, what really, uh, you know, at the New School, I've done a whole series of conversation 
on, on trauma, on different yeah. aspects of trauma. And that connects, of course, to the work that we've done over 26 years with cancer patients, but in many other respects, it, it connects to uh, uh, many aspects of all of our experience. And I think you do just a beautiful job of, of exploring trauma, um, beginning with your, your tracing of its, etym, uh, of its original meaning in, in Greek. Uh, it's, a, it's a word meaning wound. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and you talk about uh, a book by Judith Herman, which I haven't read and I'll find, called Trauma and Recovery. And I, I understand you found that to be a really... Good exploration. I of the found it. Uh, you know, again, we're we're talking maybe. I think it's probably published about fifteen years ago. Right. I found it to be one of the most um, um, uh, wonderful books about the phenomenon. If you can have a wonderful book about trauma, I mean, of course we can. Uh, uh, in 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 that um, as uh, as a, a person personally, you know, familiar with trauma, I found myself saying uh, yes on every page. Uh, and, uh, and that's often not the case. Uh, I, I felt that she, she had both um, insight and accuracy and uh, compassion sort of very, very well balanced. Uh, uh, and I'm not a great reader of... Um, of books, hmm. but, uh, but that was, uh, yeah, I do. And, and what you drew from it and, and, and created here uh, is, uh, and we touched upon this earlier, but it just seemed to me so powerful uh, uh, an exploration that, that the trauma fundamentally shatters the self. Uh, uh, and then, but on the other hand, that fundamental shattering of the self uh, creates, if one can see it, a radical freedom. Yeah. Um, and you quote Gregory Corso, Some, sometimes hell is a good place if it proves to one that because it exists, so, much is, so must its opposite, heaven exist. And what is heaven? Poetry. <laughs> he and I are both pagans, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and then you connect that the, the, the poet uh, with uh, the shaman. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, but the difference, as you describe it, is that uh, you say the shaman, like our contemporary trauma victim, has been cut off from the rest of the social community. He could have died. He could have lived in a post-traumatic state of complete despair. But instead, he responded creatively and courageously by engaging this destructive force and transforming it and himself in, at the same time. And then you see the poet, in a sense, as uh, the person who, in a culture that no longer has the shared cultural assumptions that enabled shamanism to really work, but the poet must work through that transformation for himself or herself. And yet, through that, working through for him or herself, reconnect to the human experience that that touches others. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The, again, Stanley Kinnitz, the, the voice of the solitary that makes others less alone. 
Right. And in, in, in many cases, maybe not in all, there are blessed lives, but, but in many, many cases, what we know about uh, lyric poets is that they do engage this disorder. They engage this, uh, and, and for many of us, not for all of us, uh, it, it's, it's of a traumatic nature. Yeah. And it is a, it is a, it's a, it's a very uh, heavy challenge to the human spirit as a, sh- as a shaping, uh, ordering, transforming, wishing to survive entity. And I think poetry is proof that that the human spirit has encountered extraordinary things and survived to speak about it and shape about it, shape it, and that's. That's very important. Um, um, people think, oh, and there's Sylvia Plath, and, uh, and she killed herself. Well, yes, she did, but at the very extremity of her being, she was able to articulate experience and still want to live, you know, still want to make a beautiful object out of, out of her suffering. Um, Emily Dickinson, the same thing, constantly threatened with uh, uh, the instability of herself. But she says to the reader, you know, dare you see a soul at the white heat? You know, I mean, she's, her soul is at the white heat. She challenges us to go there. But, she, but, she's, but the reward is, yes, you will see what people can endure and still create meaning or create beauty. And, and Dickinson also says, she says somewhere, you know, that the province of the saved, which is that is to say the province of someone who has been traumatized and survived it, the province of the saved is, is, is to save others, to show them that, that, no, this isn't death. This isn't total destruction of self. This is just life in a state of extremity. Which, which is the shamanic journey. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And and again, the shaman, the 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 the, the beautiful part about the, the shamanic journey in the cultures where where that's a part of the story is that they have a social function very clearly demarcated. Uh, when people are ill, there they they come to the shaman. Uh, the shaman with the power song both diagnoses them and and goes to the travels on the on with the song with their song travels. The, the song carries them to the to the land of the dead, where they bring the soul back, um, uh, the soul of the patient, and uh, heal them. And uh, there there are infinite instances of the way that 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 human cultures have recognized that healing power that's related to um, poetry and song. In the last segment of your book, which we can't do justice to in detail, but I, I really feel compelled because of its power to speak to it, you describe how um, uh, up until the mid-18th century, most lyric poets either emerged from or worked for the overculture, yep. expressing and dramatizing the values and attitudes of the ruling elites. But in the mid-18th century, and I'm quoting you, as the overculture began to change rapidly and chaotically, a number of poets switched sides and began to speak from other points of view than the ruling classes. Uh, and you contrast Alexander Pope, who was the, uh, spoke for the elites, 
with William Blake, who, who began to speak for the other side. And, and the rest of the book really follows um, through, uh, through Blake, through Wordsworth, through Keats, um, through uh, Walt Whitman, uh, uh, through Dickinson, and then through others, uh, the, the, the journey of poetry as it switched sides in order to cope with the, the global trauma of a rational technological world run amok. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, that's another book I haven't got the time to write, but right. I've, I've been trying to write it. I mean, right. it's, I feel very strongly about this notion of, of an overculture that's, um, that's gone out of control and that is, you know, that, that, that poetry, um, you know, like um, you know, the, the Brazilian uh, pedagogue Paulo Freire. Yes. Yeah, talking about you know that, that to me, to me, he speaks of the, the power of literacy as a kind of uh, literacy as a liberation in, into full human dignity, and uh, the, the the power to read and write when it's when it's when it's naming our world in our words to when it's an individualized affirmation. And, and resist the overculture. I'm going to call it, I call it the overculture. Resist that oppressions of power and, and so forth. And uh, I feel as if poet, lyric poetry is a, is a part of that, that um, 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 pedagogy of the oppressed, mm. uh, the oppressed and the self-oppressed. Uh, Blake talks about uh, in, in, in London uh, the, the misery of this closed-in uh, streets in London and the misery of the faces, and that he says in the faces he sees the mind forged manacles, and uh, and and he, he's he's intuited that the that one of the deepest horrors of of contemporary you know capitalist run amok overculture is that we've we've imposed the manacles within ourselves. You know we have mind forged manacles. And we need to be, we need that freedom, and poetry is part of that. Mm. Greg, could you choose a poem that you'd like to close this conversation with? Oh, uh, let me do two. Yes, please, please. <laughs> let me do two. One, one's very short, and that, that's just because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's become, uh, it's become a, a uh, song for my wife and I, and that's uh, to be alive, not just the carcass, but the spark. That's crudely put, but if we're not supposed to dance, why all this music? Mm. Could you read that one more time? Love to. To be alive not just the carcass, but the spark. That's crudely put, but if we're not supposed to dance, why all this music? And uh, the other one was one that, that, that you um, mentioned earlier. This is what was bequeathed us this earth, the beloved, left, and leaving, 
left to us. No other world but this one. Willows and the river and the factory with its black smokestacks. No other shore, only this bank on which the living gather. No meaning but what we find here. No purpose but what we make. That and the Beloved's clear instructions turn me into song, sing me awake. Mm. Gregory Orr, Professor of English at the University of Virginia, thank you for being with us at the New School. Michael, thank you. It was a pleasure.